If you're enjoying Bradbury 100, please search for my YouTube channel, Bradbury 101, where I review Ray's books and films. And why not check out my other podcast, Science Fiction 101, where we explore science fiction from all angles. Find Science Fiction 101 wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the life and work of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Hello and welcome to another episode of Bradbury 100. And today it's another of my occasional series of Chronological Bradbury where I worked through the stories of Ray Bradbury in the order that they were published. Last time I did one of these, I talked about the year 1938, when a 17-year-old Ray Bradbury got his first fiction published as an amateur. And today we're moving on to 1939, when the 18- and 19-year-old Ray Bradbury saw five stories published, still only as an amateur. His first true professional sale would come two years later, in 1941. So there are five stories to discuss today, and they appeared under different names. For whatever reason, Ray didn't seem to settle on using just his own real name for writing in these early years. It took a while for that to happen. So we have, for example, the story How to Run a Successful Ghost Agency, which is apparently by one Brian Aldred. We have Mummy Dust, which is apparently by Cecil Claiborne Cunningham. What a name! And we have Don't Get Technatal, which seems to be by Ron Reynolds. And then we have Gold, which is actually attributed to Ray Bradbury. And The Pendulum, which appeared anonymously in Ray's own fanzine. A little caution, by the way, about The Pendulum. It's not to be confused with a different story called Pendulum, which would appear two years later. And that was a story which was co-authored by Bradbury with his friend Henry Hassey. We'll come to that in a future episode. So let's take a look at the first of those five stories, How to Run a Successful Ghost Agency. This first appeared in the fanzine De Journal, that's D apostrophe journal, in March 1939, and it's never been collected in any of Ray's books, so on that basis it's quite a rare piece, although it's fairly easy to get hold of. The journal was edited by a guy called Wilson Tucker, and he was very much taken with zany stories, and this very much appealed to the young Ray Bradbury. And the name Brian Aldred, the pseudonym that Ray uses for this story, was one of those stock aliases used in Tucker's fanzines. Now, a few of Ray's early amateur stories were included in the book The Collected Stories of Ray Bradbury, A Critical Edition, Volume 1, but this one, How to Run a Successful Ghost Agency, isn't one of those stories included. But the story survives because the fanzine, the journal, has survived, and the book called The Earliest Bradbury, by David and Daniel Ritter, includes a facsimile copy. 
It's not tremendously long. It just appeared on page 12 of the journal. Volume 1, number 2, March 1939. A single page, an entire story. And it is simply dialogue. It begins like this. Miss Track, send me some ghosts right away, will you? Yes, sir. What sizes will you have? Oh, B-37 will be all right. And have the stockroom throw in a few ogres, deadheads, and a couple of ghouls. And so it goes on with various ghoulish puns, such as don't spook until you are spoken to. And we discover that Mr Frankie is having trouble with his ghost business. He says it's nothing but a shadow of what it used to be. You see, Mr Frankie rents ghosts out to haunt houses. I'm afraid this really is a very amateurish piece of writing, and in many ways it's not surprising that Ray put a false name on it, and that he never bothered reprinting it anywhere. It's a very slender piece. It's literally one page of subpar comedy dialogue. But we must remember that Ray loved skits. He loved radio comedy. And he even submitted scripts and jokes to the George Burns and Gracie Allen show. And so seeing this back-and-forth dialogue between two characters, you can very much imagine it being done in a radio comedy of the time. But it doesn't really stand up as a story, unfortunately. I did discover one thing in looking for this particular story, and that is that it has often been misrecorded. Its title has been misrecorded, including by me. In the short story finder on my website, bradburymedia.co.uk, I have it listed as how to run a successful ghost agency. But when you look at the actual fanzine page where the story was published, it's called To Run a Successful Ghost Agency. So I need to go and correct my records. Moving on to the second Bradbury story to be published in 1939, and that's Mummy Dust. It's another piece from the same fanzine, De Journal, this time from May 1939, and as I mentioned before, it's published under a pseudonym, Cecil Claiborne Cunningham. So we're still talking about amateur fiction at this point. We're still talking about stuff that doesn't particularly identify itself as being by Ray Bradbury. And once again, it's not a story that was included in the Collected Stories scholarly edition. But it is included, in facsimile, in The Earliest Bradbury. And once again, it's a single page of typescript mostly in the form of dialogue, but with a little bit of narrative commentary going on. And in the journal, it's accompanied by a little box that says, C.C. Cunningham is, you must know, a stock office alias. Last issue, one fan used it. This time, another does. Both fans are well known. Both desire secrecy. So a little warning there that uh, just because we see this name, Cecil Claiborne Cunningham, attached to a story which has been identified as being by Ray Bradbury, we shouldn't assume that every piece of work attributed to Cecil Claiborne Cunningham is a Bradbury work. It's a pseudonym which multiple people hid behind. However, just to be clear, this one story has been positively identified by John Eller and Don Albright, two of the leading Bradbury historians, as being a genuine Bradbury. And when we get to the subject matter of the story, you can see how easily identifiable it is. So what's this story about? Well, it begins like this. Top of the morning, fair one, chortled Tarzan, 
as he made a sweeping bow, bow in hand, loincloth in its proper place, before the fair lady of the Nile. Cleopatra, how be ye this fair day? Yes, you heard right, Tarzan, in conversation with Cleopatra. And not only that, with Cleopatra is King Arthur and Merlin. Now, Merlin needs some mummy dust for a particular spell that he has in mind, and he asks Cleopatra, can you guide me to a tomb where he can fill his empty pockets with mummy dust? And she says, sure thing, I know where there's a nifty tomb the Egyptologists haven't found yet. So off they go. And then the door swings open on this tomb, and inside the tomb is Tarzan, who explains that he is there because he is the real Merlin, and he's appeared there by magic. Yeah, this story makes really no sense whatsoever. It's not particularly clever, it's not particularly funny, but we can see the intent behind it that, once again, Ray is in love with these short comedy skits. And the single-page story format that he uses in De Journal seems to have been an ideal proving ground for him, for, for trying out these ideas. Oh, and it's fascinating to see that even at this young age, Bradbury was interested in Egyptology, mummies, and Edgar Rice Burroughs, in this case referring to Burroughs's famous creation, Tarzan. On to the third story now, which is Don't Get Technatal, or it may be that it's intended that we pronounce it as Don't Get Technatal. I'll explain more in a moment. Now, this one comes from Ray's own fanzine, Futuria Fantasia, and it appeared there in summer 1939 under a pseudonym, Ron Reynolds. In this particular instance, Ray was using a pseudonym because, well, he wrote nearly the entire contents of Futuria Fantasia, but he didn't want it to look as if he'd written it all himself. So he used a variety of pseudonyms to make it look as if there were multiple contributors. A lot of fanzine editors did this uh, back in the day, and probably still do today. Fortunately for us, Futuria Fantasia has survived. Every single issue still exists. And there was a book put out a few years ago which reproduced all of the issues in facsimile, so they're relatively easy to get hold of. In fact, that Futuria Fantasia book is the only book that Don't Get Technatal has ever been reproduced in, with the exception of the collected stories of Ray Bradbury, uh, a critical edition, volume one, uh, which reproduces it in the appendix as an example of Ray's early amateur writing. And thanks to the collected stories, by the way, we have a decent typesetting of the story. So with Don't Get Technatal, we're not dependent on reproductions of faded fanzine paper from back in the 30s. Now, this one is a little bit longer than the previous stories I've mentioned today, and it is more of a proper short story than just a dialogue piece. To fully understand the story, though, you need to know about technocracy. Technocracy was a movement that had some popularity in the 1930s, mainly in North America, and the movement basically favoured the idea that we should be governed by, well, people who understand how things actually work, rather than by opportunist politicians, let's say, or uh, the richest people in the land. What a novel idea! 
being governed by experts. Hmm, maybe we should try that sometime. Anyway, for a couple of years around 1939, the technocracy movement was popular among, well, at least a faction of the Los Angeles Science Fiction Society, which Ray belonged to. But alongside the story, Don't Get Technatal, the editor of Futuria Fantasia, one Mr Ray Bradbury, put a little explanation of why he'd included the story. He says, It's because I think technocracy combines all of the hopes and dreams of science fiction. We've been dreaming about it for years. Now, in a short time, it may become reality. It surely deserves support from any serious fictioneer. So, what's the story about? The opening lines introduce us to a character named Stern. It begins, For several moments, Stern had eyed his typewriter, ominously contemplating whether he should utter the unutterable. And then Stern tears the paper out of his typewriter, saying that he can't write anymore. Technocracy is ruining everything. And he says, I, I want to be a writer, and the technate has spoiled my fun. And his wife is rather horrified and suggests, well, maybe he'd prefer to go back to the barbarian days of the dark 30s. Uh, it turns out, by the way, near the end of the story, that the story takes place in 1975. So this is actually set maybe 40 years in the future, at the time it was published. Stern's problem, he says, is that he can't write about gangsters or bank robberies or hold-ups or good old-fashioned burglaries or vice gangs or sadness, because in the technocratic world that now exists in 1975, everybody's happy and contented. There's no strife. There's no hard work. Everybody's too happy. There's nothing for him to write about. So his wife says to him, well, maybe you should write a love story. But even that doesn't work for Stern. He says, we don't even have decent love in this society, in the technocratic world. Uh, there are no society weddings. There are no coming out parties because everybody is equal now. So finally, Stern's wife suggests maybe he should write some science fiction. And, but he says, I don't like science. The wife returns once again to the idea of, well, write a love story then. And then Stern suddenly figures it out. He says, I'll write a story about robots in love. But the, his wife thinks that's a terrible idea. So he abandons that one as well. Now, at the end of the story, here's a spoiler for you. He looks at his wife, who in turn is looking out at the air traffic going past the window. And she bends over the windowsill and looks down to the streets below. And as he looks at her, he reaches for his atomic gun. And that's the end of the story. The implication being, he's going to kill her. If he commits murder, then there's a story for him to write about. Now, of all of these stories I've covered today, this is probably the one that comes closest to being a real short story. It's about something. It has a plot of sorts. It has characters of a sort. It's not set in a fantasy world, but in a science fictional world, a world which has changed because of one specific thing that we can pinpoint, and that is technocracy, which has become the dominant force in society. 
And having changed the world in that one way, the story is then exploring the consequences, the problems that arise. It's not the greatest story ever written, but it is a story. Now back to that title, Don't Get Technatal or Don't Get Technatal. And I mentioned earlier the technate. So what's this all about? Well, the story doesn't specifically say what the technate is. It's spelled with a capital T. In context, you might think it's a person. Maybe the technate is the person in charge of this technocratic society. But actually, it's the region, the area, the place. It's the place where a technocratic society exists. So it's a, a technical term, if you like, within technocracy. So if the United States became a state ruled by technocracy, then the United States would be a technate. There's supposedly a little bit more to it. And if you Google a definition of technate, you'll find that there are some technical requirements that technocrats insisted a technate must have. But that goes beyond the scope of this podcast, I think. But I must say, it always seemed odd to me that Bradbury would attach himself to a movement like technocracy. Not because the movement seems at odds with his beliefs or anything of that nature. It's simply that he never appeared to be a joiner. He hedged his bets as far as politics is concerned. I mean, there was a time when he identified as a Democrat and occasionally as a Republican, but mostly he refused to be pinned down. And the same goes for his faith system, if any. He refused to be pinned down in terms of religion. But for a few short years in his teens, he evidently was convinced by technocracy. And who can blame him? The world was recovering from the massive depression of the 1930s, and it was on the brink of being plunged into World War II. And I guess it was World War II that really put the final nail in the coffin of the technocracy movement. On to the fourth story for today, and this one is called Gold. This was published in a different magazine, a different fanzine, Science Fiction Fan, in August 1939. And for once, it appears under Ray's own name. Even so, it's not been collected, so it's not in any of Ray's books. It's not in the collected stories of Ray Bradbury, but it is in The Earliest Bradbury, where once again, it's reproduced in facsimile. And once again, in this story, there's a reference to technocracy. Again, evidence that Ray was in thrall to that philosophy. Gold is a short piece, a mere three pages, and it's about a man who discovers the golden treasure of Atlantis. And he loads it up on his yacht and heads off for home. And on his way, he receives a telegram from a technocrat friend who tells him that uh, basically capitalism has collapsed and gold is now completely worthless. And so for our hero, the only sensible thing is to get rid of the, the treasure. It has no value now. So he throws it overboard and then drowns himself. Unfortunately, though, it turns out that the first telegram was a practical joke. So a rather sad ending there and a warning to us all not to play serious practical jokes on people. 
Finally, we come to story number five from 1939, which is The Pendulum. And this appeared once again in Ray's own fanzine, Futuria Fantasia, in the fall of 1939. But it appeared without a byline, so you could say it was anonymous. But on the other hand, the fanzine was clearly the personal publication of Ray Bradbury. So the reader would be justified in assuming that Ray had written it. Now, of all these early pieces, this is one that has actually seen print since, outside of these kind of specialist Bradbury volumes. And that's because in 1971, it appeared in an anthology called Horrors Unknown, edited by Sam Moskowitz. You can also find it in the collected stories where it appears in an appendix. And there it appears as The Pendulum First Version. And the editors did that deliberately to distinguish it from Pendulum, a 1941 story, which we will get to eventually on this podcast. Pendulum being Ray's first true professional sale as a writer. Now, with The Pendulum, we get to Bradbury as influenced by Edgar Allan Poe. Because, of course, Poe wrote a famous story called The Pit and the Pendulum. And here's a story about a pendulum. And I think this story probably has the best opening of any piece of Bradbury writing up until this point. And I'll read you the entire opening paragraph. Up and down, back and forth, up and down. First the quick flight skyward, gradually slowing, reaching the pinnacle of the curve, poising a moment, then flashing earth with again faster and faster at a nauseating speed, reaching the bottom and hurling aloft at the opposite side, up and down, back and forth, up and down. So Ray is really using all of his skills as a writer with that paragraph. And remember, he's 19 years old at this point. The pendulum isn't any old pendulum. Oh, no, no, no. This is a pendulum which is described as a massive glass pendulum. And inside it is the character Laville. And he doesn't know how long he's been there. The story says it might have been millions of years he'd spent sitting there in the massive glass pendulum, watching the world tip one way and another, up and down. So he's been locked into this pendulum by somebody. He's referred to as the prisoner of time. And we learn that the pendulum is a machine which he had planned and constructed, and it's a machine to warp space. And because it's an, an amazing scientific breakthrough, he invites all the world's leading scientists to come and have a look at it. But there's some kind of accident. All of the great scientists are killed. So he's put on trial for their murder, and the order is made to destroy his machine and destroy him along with it. But somebody suggests a more fitting punishment would be revenge. And the revenge put him in the pendulum, swinging backwards and forwards for eternity. So once again, a very Edgar Allan Poe approach to a story, not only the pendulum motif itself, but the theme of revenge. Now, we'll see in two years' time, in 1941, that Ray resurrects the pendulum for a new version of the story, co-written with Henry Hassey. And that, as I say, will turn out to be his first professional sale as a writer. 
Hold that thought. We'll get there eventually on the podcast, I promise you. But for now, we leave Ray in 1939, 19 years old. He's launched his own fanzine. He's been a very active member of the Los Angeles Science Fiction Society. Also in 1939, he has travelled to New York for the first ever World Science Fiction Convention. Ray was there, in at the start of science fiction fandom. So although he's not yet a professional, he is becoming known in the fan world. He's getting his work seen not only in his own fanzines, but in fanzines published by others, not just in Los Angeles where he lives, but across the country. And as a reminder, in 1938, Ray had three stories published in amateur magazines. In 1939, five stories. And in 1940, he goes on to even greater heights. And 1940 is what I'll cover the next time I do a chronological Bradbury. I hope you've enjoyed this run through some of Ray's earliest fiction. And if you go to my website, bradburymedia.co.uk, I'll have links to some of the fanzines so that you can read these stories for yourself and make up your own mind about whether this is an author who is going somewhere. Uh, spoiler alert, he sure is. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time on Bradbury 100. If you enjoy Bradbury 100, please give me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. A five-star review will help others to find the podcast. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe to or follow the podcast using your podcast app. You can find us on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast places. And don't forget to look for my Bradbury 101 series on YouTube and my other audio podcast, Science Fiction 101. For information on all of these and an endless supply of information about Ray Bradbury and his works, head to my website, bradburymedia.co.uk. 